0: Hello, and welcome to episode five of Back to Britpop. It's Chris, and uh, on this episode, I'm speaking to Matt James of Gene. Matt talks about the early days of the band, how they recruited Martin Rossiter as their frontman. They released a few songs as Spin, and then changed their name to Gene shortly after, sort of reinventing the band, so to speak. Um, they had some great success uh, in the 90s. Um, first studio album was Olympian uh, in 1995. And they continued to record and put out music Uh, Right into the 2000s. Matt talks about the band's influences, the early recording sessions and what it was like on tour for the band in those early years. I'll be back after the interview as per the norm to talk about where you can find me on social media and get involved in all that sort of thing but in the meantime here's Matt. Hello and welcome to the podcast Matthew James.
1: Hello there, how's you doing? I'm very well, how are you? Not bad, not bad. Ready to talk about something that happened many years ago. (laughs) How have you been coping in
0: this weird lockdown
1: situation we've had or we're just coming out of? Um, it's good, you know. It, I've um, well, We moved away from London. I used to live in Camden for years and uh, Camden-Islington sort of area. And uh, we moved away in 2015. So at the end, I now live at the end of a farm track surrounded by woods and fields. So, you know, like I'm surrounded by just all... Woodland animals and pheasants and things <laughs> like that. And uh, it's, it's a very good place to um, isolate yourself, really. So uh, it, it couldn't be better, you know, and we've got, a, you know, in London, we had a tiny postage stamp uh, garden size and here we've got so much more so you know we've got two young kids and they're you know they've been running around and I'm so grateful to have that
0: what do you think is going to happen to sort of uh, live music and things as we come out of this era do you think it's I mean obviously there's been lots on the news about music venues recovering and things like that but it's definitely going to be a a very trying time uh, for the industry isn't it do you think
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do feel that it will return. You know, I mean, for the past 13 years, I've been a wine merchant and, uh, you know, I, su- I supply wine to pubs and I've found that the, the pubs have quite quickly after lockdown got back to like, some of them are doing more social distancing than others. And some of them are barely on the limit of what is legal and some, you know, and I, I think there's a desire to get, back to normal and I think the gigs will do it, but I think it'll probably be into next year. And um, you know, of course it, it depends on whether we get a vaccine. And if they are true to their word, so we have it by Christmas, then, you know, all gigs next year will be fine, won't they? But
0: Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed that that, that people can start going out and enjoying live music again. This is kind of brings us nicely onto sort of um the birth of gene, if you like, and um how you guys got together really it would be really interesting to know from your point of view
1: how did the band get together what was the sort of um creation like well myself and steve were in another band called spin we were a signed band um we we were a bit of a sort of indie dance style band and uh, we weren't really uh, we weren't really leaders of the scene i think we were sort of chasers of it and but it, it was a it was a journey that we were on and um and sadly, spin came to an end where we had a, a motorway crash. We, we actually had um, we'd broken down. We had a pretty useless transit van. And uh, we, we'd broken down on the uh, M40 on the way back from uh, a gig in Dudley JB's. And um, various members asleep inside the van and two members with a head in the bonnet and a lorry careered off the road and uh, hit us at 60 miles an hour. And uh, you know, people had life-changing inj- injuries from that um, uh, that accident so that it sort of um, no one died but um, it certainly it, it wasn't possible to carry on the band as before but Steve and I had you know thankfully not been injured too badly in it and uh, we definitely wanted to continue with spin actually and uh, so we needed um, a bass player and a singer and um, Kev a bass player in Jean lived upstairs. He was a friend of a friend. Uh, he lived upstairs. in those from Grimsby, he was staying in London at the time. And um, he lived upstairs uh, in my flat. And he was actually a guitarist, but he was happy to play bass. But we didn't have a singer. And um, we did the thing of auditioning. We did melody maker adverts. And things weren't going particularly well. We, we met Martin in the Underworld Club in Camden. And we'd gone down there with Stephen Street, and who was our producer, and we were hanging out with the Blur guys at um, at the bar with all the other indie kids. And um, Martin was sort of one of those. And Stephen and Martin checked each other out, and uh, because the auditions had gone so badly, he, he just asked him if he wanted to come along. And he definitely had something about him, you know. He had a strange card. He produced it like a joke card that <laughs> uh, um, said. Martin Ross, the soothsayer to the rich and famous, and uh, it was just like, "Who's this guy?" You know, and um, it was just obviously a job. But then he produced another one, just saying, "Consultant psycho killer, no job too small." And, uh, and I was just like, you know, it's "Quite taken with him, really." He was a kind of odd little chap, and um, but you know, the one thing he had uh, that we noticed then and when he came into the rehearsal that he was charismatic you know he was the moment he started singing there was a vibe about him and there's a strange charisma some people who you you think are confident and you know would usually exude loads of charisma they, they don't often have it but martin actually wasn't confident but he he was charismatic and um, that was the thing and so he joined Spin initially and we made a record as Spin, the Gene lineup as Spin. Uh, we did one EP. and uh, But then we realised that it was our chance to uh, change our name and, and, and start doing different music really.
0: So what music were you into then when you were sort of
1: learning your trade or the, the drums? I was a, a young child in the early 70s and so I remember like, you know, I remember making uh, a Dave Hill guitar, you know, I'll be into Slade and T-Rex and The Suite and bands like that. But I also liked, um, I remember my sister, like I sent her out to buy um, That Lady by the Isley Brothers because uh, I'd heard Ernie Isley's guitar on it, which was just uh, just incredible really. I just never heard it. I wasn't even sure there was a guitar or a piano or whatever it was, but um, I loved that record. And then sort of later on in the late seventies, uh, you know, as I was a, a, an older kid, uh, I got into massively, got into punk music. The Clash were my favorite band. I probably, I loved the Stranglers as well. I sort of, I think I probably listened to the Stranglers records more than, I sort of wanted to be in the Clash, but I listened to the Stranglers records, or the, the sort of more melodic sort mm. of, uh, side of it a bit more. I loved those sort of the Rational Veggies, No More Heroes and and then I only really listened to punk till I was about 18, 90. I was a bit of a purist in that respect. But after that, I let in all the classics of the Beatles, Stones, and made sure I was covered with, you know, Big Star, Grand Parsons, you know. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had so much to get through. And, um, and of course, people, other people turned me on to bands like Kev when he joined. I hadn't really listened to the faces. Um, I, I just thought they were a bit sort of old pub rockers sort of thing but he introduced me to the Faces and I thought they were an amazing band not so much Rod although Roddy's a great singer but it's really the feel of the band and I think the Faces and Big Star had uh, probably the biggest influence on on Gene's music in the early days So do you think you brought you
0: brought a sort of different musical element to the band did, or did, ev- did everyone come
1: to the table with something slightly different or were you kind of yeah, all I think in so. the same I mean, Martin was into dark. he he liked sort of left wing like punk like Redskins and things like that. But he loved he'd been in a dance band called Drop before, and uh, he loved dance music and pop music and uh, sort of strange things like hymns, you know. He, he, and you know, he's got great musicality, Martin. He, 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 obviously, a piano player. And Kev was like really into like the uh, the soul and the the mod scene. You know, he was very much into the Jam, were his favourite band, but he he loved the whole the whole mod thing and Northern Soul. And Steve was, you know, being a guitarist, he loved the sort of Hendrix and you know, the Stones and the, the classics really. And I was a bit more of the sort of indie kid old punker and yeah. so there was you know there was a there was a, there was a nice mix that came together really and so
0: when did you think this is a very cliche question sorry but where did you think you discovered the gene sound was there a particular moment in like a session or a, or a, a practice rehearsal where you kind of thought ah we've got we've got our signature sound because it's very distinctive isn't it really gene
1: yeah but once we hit when once we wrote for the dead yeah. We'd, as I say, when we were spin, we were still messing around with indie dance music, but we we were sort of playing sort of faces tunes. And um, and then we wrote, or Steve wrote the rift for the dead and in a kind of Ronnie Wood style. Mm. And then uh, we wrote that song. And then Martin had his sort of Quite different sort of vote. Martin is so different to Rod Stewart's vocalist. You know, <laughs> yeah, having that, it was it was a juxtaposition. And and when we wrote for the dead, we realised that that was something that no one else was doing. No one else was mixing those elements, mm. and we had a sound. And uh, Steve had hit on something. He was he could play very fast. You know. Sort of, you know, Hendrixy stuff, but this was more soulful. And um, it was when we wrote that song that we realised we had our sound, and we sort of everything, everything, you know, version from that point on. So, when did you sort of start um, treading your A's then,
0: in, on the in the clubs and, and uh, bars and whatnot?
1: With this line up sort of '93. You know, I, I'd been in lots of bands before, but. And I'd certainly gone up and down the country in vans a lot, but thankfully when Martin joined um, and once we changed our name to Gene and uh, we didn't have to do lots and lots of gigs. We had a manager, which really, I think we only did about nine uh, before we were, the interest started to happen and there was a couple of music journalists. Our manager had been a music journalist himself. So it was, it was so helpful to have an influential person that could bring other people down. And I felt that we, we had become good enough, but we, we were lucky enough to have the right contacts at that point. And um, so we didn't do loads of loads and loads of shows. In fact, once the interest did start, we started to restrict, we didn't overplay. I remember doing things like strange gigs at like the Charlie Chaplin in Elephant and Castle with, with Gene and, Obviously, we did The Monarch. I remember doing one gig in The Monarch uh, in Camden. I'd played there a lot with other bands, but it was one of those gigs where the whole industry had come down to see us, all the A&R men from every record company and every publishing company, and the whole place was absolutely rammed, full of industry. And they didn't really clap as well. I thought we played well. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was quite spirited, but A&R men, just, they just don't do it. You know? They just. Yeah. We thought oh we've blown it <laughs> no, but you know i certainly paid my dues in other bands but thankfully with, with gene we we just seemed to have it right and there was there was a feel about the band and there was interest and we didn't have to trawl up and down the country 10 times before we got a record here.
0: it's a very different story isn't it for other bands who who seem to plug and plug and plug away and i think if you've, you've already got one foot in the door especially as you've worked so hard with the previous kind of with the previous lineup and the, as you say the different band, it's it is surprising yeah. how how much that work will pay off in the end. And we always in I, I was in a band in in the early noughties and we had a label interest for about a, a month or so. And we had the same thing with you, but not not necessarily to that extent. But a and our guys from quite a lot of majors came to see us in London and we did a couple of showcase shows up there. And uh, met a few interesting people and got very excited about publishers and all that sort of thing and lawyers and and then it went very quiet very quickly <laughs> and um it was the end of us instead of uh picking up pieces from that and learning something from it and maybe just pushing and trying a bit harder we decided just to give it all up we thought well was it that was our shot and uh and then after that um, felt completely
1: demoralized by the whole experience and and uh split up. Yeah. I, I certainly, you know, I've had that experience with bands myself, you know, and and since Gene, you know, like Steve and I had a, a decent band, I thought, with with another singer, you know. So I've I've had it before Gene. I've had, it, you know, then Gene sort of clicked, had the magic and worked, and um, then since Gene, you know, I've I've had other sort of we call them failures, but things that weren't things that didn't hugely crossover or or enable me to keep doing it I think you definitely
0: it's it's definitely one of those things that you either are what they are looking for at that precise moment and the feedback we kept getting was you know you're 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 very good but you're just not good enough and and you're not in that naught point whatever it is percent of
1: of the bands that get to the next stage and it's like oh god well it was awful if you're sort of almost begging labels or just like pinning your hopes on that. Like, Can you like, like this and come and like work with us and then we'll be good. I, I just, I just think you're, it's not the way it should be done. I mean, really, it, they've got to be chasing you and see the interests on there. I mean, the difference with, with us, uh, our, our manager was a music journalist. And then yeah. he had the genius idea of bringing two other music journalists in and who wanted to be involved in a a band breaking. And they put their savings, they put a thousand pounds each into releasing for the dead. This is Keith Cameron and Roy Wilkinson who were like select journal, and um, I think Keith was NME then. When they did that, it kind of validated it and it was as I'd never had anything like that before. I'd I'd labored to get in those papers, you know, for, for mm. years. <laughs> and uh you know the a sudden, you know, and, and then the labels all been piled in quite soon after that. When a vibe happens, everybody wants it, that you not know. they? Did
0: you sign for to Polydor initially, if I read that right? Or was did that come well, later? We
1: signed to um Keith and Roy's label Costamonger. Yeah. Which is sort of a, a vessel for us to just kick things off, really. And then quite quickly, after a you know, a couple of singles, we signed a deal with Polydor, but we said to them, You're not going to do this until a second album. So we were we were sort of funded by Polydor and um but they allowed us to have separate distribution, like completely indie vibe, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the deal was that once you've got this uh, album um, out the way, we're going to like swoop in, and uh, you know you'll you'll sign to us. So it was like we knew we knew it was coming, but um, you know, it was like I do lament those days. I think we it was quite nice when we were doing it, just a small little group, and uh, you know yeah. sorting it out ourselves a bit. By the time we signed, we were in a position to dictate the terms a little bit because uh, every single record company was taking us out for dinner and uh, promising us stuff. And so we were able to taper a deal. I mean, I'm sure, you know, if they really, really want an act, they're going to start giving up things, they? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> allowing, allowing you to do it. But, you know, the industry isn't like that anymore. It's, it's even harder to, to get a record deal now. You know, it's just sort of... it's i mean do you even need a record deal it's a publishing deal you do need you know but i don't know (laughs) whether whether that's the way to do it anymore although there are some very successful indie labels you know know, excel belly union and you know there are ones that are are doing well but Mm. um I, i do i do fear for the for the up and coming bands you know like if my son, who's seven now, wants to be in a van, I just don't know what to tell him to do. Really. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe get into wine tasting.
0: Maybe that might be <laughs> yeah. a, give him a, right, a shoe a shoe up there or a leg up, rather. Let's talk about uh, Britpop a little bit then. In terms of um, yeah. what was happening as that scene was kind of erupting, you know, we look back at it now. as what was it like? What was
1: sort of what was going on? It was just a very exciting time that you know bands that could never never dream about getting in the main charts you know your, your aspirations were always just the indie charts and the, the thought that you know you could now consider getting in the top twenty and maybe go on top of the pops you know it It was very exciting and we used to We used to tour with um, you know the, the bands and we used to hang out with them quite a lot and we'd be like partying with Elastica and we'd be off in France with like Echo Belly and Shed Seven and Oasis. And uh, it it was, it felt like we did feel the bands were all very different, but it felt an exciting time. I mean, it, it was a definitely a good era for music and um, it, I think everybody had their own flavor. Having tried for so long to, to, breakthrough in the music industry i i, I was just you know I mean, it's just so happy to be doing it to be yeah. you know the flow i mean i remember I, I um i got into you know on tour and we didn't i didn't come home for about eight months <laughs> <You know? laughs> i remember having like i had parking tickets that were, that were unpaid you know and uh, i didn't actually even I don't think I even went back to that address. I just like had a. I just lived on a tour bus, basically. For right? you, were just like road warriors, and uh, that's that's what it became. You, you'd go and do you know, a UK tour, then you'd be off to straight off to Germany, and then straight on to Japan from there. You know, and it's um, that was a, a great way to live your life, really. And, and that was my life for sort of ten odd years. So was there
0: some real camaraderie between other indie? pop bands at the time
1: then was there competition as well maybe yes yeah, i think healthy competition i mean you'd definitely check out like where so-and-so's record was going in the charts and if they'd you know beaten you and uh you, you definitely would be oh how did they manage that <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um i think we all got on you know i just remember being on tour with Cast, you know, and uh, Shed, I remember in Shed Seven, we were in Marseille. We were, I think, we were doing some sort of NME tour in France or some sort of like. There was another band as well, and we were all just like after the show, we all just like piled down to Marseille Harbor and thought it'd be a good idea to jump in, <laughs> you know, but I can't say that I did, but Alan, the drummer from Shed 7 did. And he came out like bright red. <laughs> there must have been all kinds of chemicals in there. And, uh, but, you know, I remember things like that happening. And, uh, and then of course, when I got back to London, you, you didn't, you know, there will be you'd be on out to the everyone else's gigs anyway and then backstage and you know it's a sort, sort of uh, a constantly like reoccurring gig will like, i yours or someone yeah, else's
0: yeah. how did you find writing new material that must have been quite difficult then in the early or, or did you did you kind of do that on the
1: road well we had to really with um uh the, the second album you know we did we had a lot of material because so we had Olympian that came out, and then we had a, an album called To See the Lights, which was basically a compilation of B sides and all the other stuff we'd written before we were signed, uh, or, or or the in the early years of, of the very early months of Gene, I would say. So we we had enough material to see us through, and um, we toured all that for you know a couple of years, and then we didn't have that much for the second album, but. We, we knuckled down to write for we sort of were able to stop touring and then uh, put in a time where we had to do some writing in the rehearsal room but it was very different having to you need you know, having pressure to write songs because we we're doing very well we couldn't leave it too like, you can't go away for two years and make a record you have yeah. to sort of come up with it um, this is the thing you know and then we and then the producer Chris Hughes got involved and you know he came down and honed help, helped us hone some of the songs in the rehearsal room, and then we recorded the second album, but it it definitely was a different vibe. I felt we had all the time in the world first time, but the second album yeah, it's a it's a classic problem that
0: is yeah, it? yeah is that when sort of um, you start getting a little bit more pressure from the label, or, or were they a little bit were they still quite flexible at the time, knowing that you were going to produce the goods ultimately
1: I think they knew we could write songs um. But they, the thing is, I remember Lucien Grange from who was head of Polydor. Was coming into the recording studio. Like the first album, we recorded quite cheaply, but because we'd done so well, they started like putting us in Metropolis Studios in in you know um, Chiswick at nine hundred pounds a day, and uh, and then we spent months in there. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I remember Lucian Grange coming out clapping his hand and I go. Play me the hits, guys. <laughs> and uh, just, I said, did, did he just say that, you know? Uh, but there was pressure, you know? I knew the money was being spent and basically we had to We basically had to sell millions to <laughs> really justify it, which yeah. did feel like proper pressure, honestly. When did it start to feel that
0: potentially that the... The bubble burst with Britpop, and that kind of that that era was coming to an end. Did you feel that sort of thing happening out?
1: I don't know whether I felt the scene you know, because we had our own fan base. I just always thought that we existed with them. Is it is it quite a shame that um, it's probably some of our own decisions that we made, but um, we didn't really cross over to the wider public and. Uh, I think it's, it's partly, but we did have a very strong fan base. So I thought w- we could all always exist with that, really. And uh, mm. so I, I think if the scene was dying, I wasn't really noticing it because I was just con- concerned with our own gigs, making sure they were selling out still and yeah. even right at the end. And when we split up in 2004, uh, I assume that Britpop was sort of over then. Yeah, But, you know... It, it was a new era, and the internet was was coming. And like the fact that we we did one of the very first ever internet broadcasts um, from LA. But I mean, look, I, I think if we if we'd actually managed to push through that period, there was you know there there were bands like Coldplay, like followed bands, that, you know, they were an anthemic indie rock band. You know, yeah, and it yeah. wasn't that, it wasn't that long after, and it, it's in the same mold as Gene. Really, yeah. you know, the
0: thing that stands out about Gene is that. You seem to be slightly yeah. more mature than what was happening. Do you know what I mean?
1: We were very uh, keen to hone our craft, you know. Mm. I, I really wanted a long career. I wanted to become a great songwriter. In fact, I think our best album is probably when we were most accomplished is, is the last one we did, Liberty. And even though it didn't sell us well, we were on our own label by then. Mm. Um, but, but certainly, you know, I just wanted to improve. And, and we, we did, we were very spirited live band but it didn't just happen we really really worked at it and uh you know i was known for being a bit of a boozer but i <laughs> you know i i was when i was on, wasn't on tour but i did take the the improvement of myself in terms of writing ability and and drumming as well and uh, playing you know i play guitar as well and i wanted to improve and from whether it would be live gigs or writing i, I had a sort of a real serious desire to improve. And, um, you know, that's why I think, although we did split in 2004, I would have liked the chance to, at that point, sort of think about over everything we had done and concentrate on making a crossover gene record with all the knowledge that we'd made but whether we had. We never got to do that. Well, I've I've been a wine merchant for 13 years now. Uh, I must say, I do absolutely love my job. You know, I I, su- I supply wine to the same pubs I used to drink in as a musician <laughs> <laughs> in Camden, and uh, but I I actually I love my job, but I realised last year, you know, music is is what I'm best at, and I may I may have a quite a, an easy life with my wine business, but music is what I'm best at. And the one thing I did miss was you know the music. I think I did need to take a long long break from it, and I did take a long break and. In 2019, I started writing again because I've, I've never actually, I sang BVs for, for Gene, but I've never actually, one challenge I had is never, I've never written songs on my own. I've always co-written and mm. I've never actually sung lead vocal before. So since August 19, I've been writing solo material. I've got like 18 songs now. So... Um, I really don 't know what i 'm going to do with them in, in a way like the pleasure has already happened you know i 've just enjoyed writing them so much, but uh, I am quite an ambitious guy, I suppose, and so I, I think I need to stop writing and um, finish some demos and then just see i don 't know what i 'm going to do with it really but But music has returned to my life quite recently and uh, oh. it's been it's been brilliant I must say that 's fantastic to hear Where can people find you on on twitter what 's your new Twitter handle? <laughs> It's Matt, M-A-T-T underscore James 100. And I've also just set up a a YouTube channel where I've just started literally some of the songs to almost like to force me to like finish a song. I said, right, I'm going to perform it with an acoustic guitar somewhere around my garden or somewhere in my house or in my office shed where I work. So I've been doing that and I've done there's five there was it five or six there now and uh, so that's been good just like trying to put myself under pressure to just perform and there's been about 100 people checking it out each time um you know probably there's a few more views than that but it's a perfect amount of people to play to (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) a little bit it's just like i don't really want thousands of people checking it out i just like uh so i've just been testing the water really and it's been nice um, I think uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a hard one to please. So I'm not, and if I do make a record, it's going to have to have extreme charm. You know, uh, I would like it to be so charming that a radio station couldn't resist playing it. But, you know, I have to sort of, um, you know, bear in mind that I'm a man in his mid 50s. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, it's been
0: an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And thank you so much for your time and and, and talking through Gene. Uh, and beyond. No, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks for thanks for asking. Big thanks to Matt. That was a really great chat. I really enjoyed it. Um, I hope you all did too. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, it'd be great if you could write a review or give us a star rating. It really does help. Um, I know I keep banging on about it. But yeah, also on social media, there's Twitter, uh, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Back to Britpop. It would be great to hear from you on there and get your feedback on the podcast and what's working and what isn't working and maybe who you'd like me to try and contact to speak to. So until the next episode of Back to Britpop, take care.